Hey guys, welcome to the CCTMC 16 wrap-up day two. My name is Faison Arshad and we've assembled a absolute dazzling rockstar panel of experts to go through the highlights of the day just in case you are hashtag L-A-M-E and didn't make it to CCTMC 16 this year. So much goodness, so much awesomeness, so much evidence-based medicine. We'll give you a taste just to titillate you and make sure that you'll consider coming to San Antonio next year. So we're going to go around and introduce our panel. Hi, I'm Craig Bates, Medical Director of Metro Life Flight and AMPA board member. My name is Mike Storwald. I'm a flight physician from the University of Wisconsin. My name is Mike Gloria. I'm a flight paramedic at the DART program at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and a second-year medical student. Hey, Bill Hinckley, 16th-year resident, UC Emergency Medicine and flight doc, UC Air Care. Yeah, Mike Abernathy. I'm a PGY-28. I'm a flight physician with the University of Wisconsin and a professor, associate professor of emergency medicine. So very exciting start to the morning and certainly a pertinent topic to all of us. We had two components in the general session that really caught everyone's attention. The first one was on the bleeding edge, combining the art and science of hemorrhage control in the pre-hospital environment, delivered by none other than one of our esteemed panelists, Dr. Craig Bates. I think, you know, the key points of looking at, uh, looking at the talk is that there's a lot of hemorrhage control measures we're doing right now that are really pretty inadequate, and it's time to get away from just using saline and thinking about our patients in terms of what their blood pressure is and looking at what we can do to really adjust the, the hemorrhage and kind of regulate it and directly control it. And simple stuff like avoiding hypothermia, cheap, affordable things we could be doing tomorrow when we get out on the aircraft. And what were your main takeaways from the talk? Well, I think you have to step back and look at what you're doing uh, in your program, really critically assess uh, what you have the capability to do. So the simple things, like I said, like keeping patients warm, keeping the whatever fluids or products you're giving to them warm, making sure you have adequate external hemorrhage control measures, and looking hard at some of the new things coming down the pike, like plasma, whether it's liquid or fresh frozen, and things like PCCs for your, your patients on warfarin, which we all know keeps those trauma centers in business in the winter months. Speaking of blood products, the next chat for the morning was pre-hospital transfusion and trauma, what does the literature say, which was an incredible dissection of the current evidence base and literature for pre-hospital blood products done by Dr. Michael Jasonback. So absolutely fascinating talk. It was really well done and we live streamed it. So if you haven't caught it yet, certainly try and catch it on Periscope, but it is up on catch.me forward slash ampadots. So we certainly encourage you all to check that out. He essentially went through our current literature base, which is quite sparse. So when we talk about this uh, study, I think folks are very excited about blood products. But if we take a step back and ask ourselves a question, can we show that the early administration of blood products in the pre-hospital environment improves outcomes? I think the answer is no. Nevertheless, there are muddy waters. He goes through the literature, uh, 2008, 2009, 2015 Brown, 2015 Holcomb, and the future studies that are pending, and talks about some of their uh, you know, good things that they had going in regards to Dr. Holcomb's study, for example, says that it has uh, decreased, uh, patients had decreased uh, need for additional blood products later on during their hospital course, but none of the studies to date are able to show an improvement in outcomes. So certainly muddy waters, a lot more questions to be answered, and I think it's important to uh, 
in our clinical care, maintain a balance between the evidence, what we advocate and carry, and costs and things along those lines. You know, I think an interesting thing that you can take away from Mike's lecture too is, is, is and it's not specific to the topic, is when literature tends to confirm what you think you believe, uh, it's very easy to not critically appraise it appropriately. And Mike, in a very entertaining and appropriate fashion, kind of skewered some of these articles that really used pretty poor methodology to come to conclusions you knew in their heart they wanted to come to. And so I think when you read something you agree with, you probably have to look at it even harder than something you don't agree with. Fantastic. So next up, we had quality metrics in critical care transport. Enough measuring. Let's improve. All right. So for those who haven't heard of the GAMET project that uh, AMP has been working on in association with the AAP for the last about three years, uh, Mike Bigham gave a crash course and talked a little bit about where we go from here with GAMET. The basic idea of GAMET is this. For so many years, I could measure my team's performance at UC Air Care, and all I could really tell you was how we compared to how we did last year or the year before, but I couldn't tell you how I compared to DARTS or UW Med Flight or Cleveland Metro uh, or any other program, and that was a very suboptimal situation. So with Gamut now, we have the ability to know how our team performs with regard to metrics that were uh, agreed upon to be important by a consensus of experts within critical care transport medicine. And we can tell how our program is doing, where we need to really focus our efforts to improve and where we're knocking it out of the park. And that's such an exciting move forward for our community. And it's something that, uh, frankly, we're very proud of within AMPA. Two individuals deserve a ton of credit who have done more work with that than anybody else, which are Mike Bigham, who gave that talk today, and Raleigh Parrish, who is the technical genius behind it. And uh, basically, Mike's point today was, now we've got enough data collected that it's really time to focus our efforts on not just measuring, but actually improving our performance and taking the next step. Thanks so much, Bill. Uh, just for folks who are looking for more information on the Gamut Project, how do you spell Gamut? GAMUT, G-A-M-U-T, and that stands for Ground and Air Medical Quality in Transport. Quality, of course, spelled with a U. Do you so, have the part of speech, sir? Uh, <laughs> hey, man, you're the guy with the acronyms that are a little sketchy. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much. Next, we had uh, Dr. Bates also attend Your Airway Toolbox. So this was a good talk that focused on the fundamentals, and when you get to airway management, really the fundamentals are often the biggest difference. And simple stuff like optimizing patient positioning, you know, making sure you have the patients, uh, you know, having their head up, having preoxygenate better, getting their ear to sternal notch lineups, so you have a better laryngoscopic view, remembering the patients preoxygenate a lot better in the stiffing position than they do laying their head back tilted. And I think a really uh, intriguing thing was talking about the, the fact that the entitled CO2 monitoring nasal cannulas, and this makes sense, and I learned this this weekend, really don't work very well for high flow preoxygenation because they have the, the space that allows you to monitor the CO2, and so uh, pressure leaks out. So that, I think it's a good takeaway, and also a reminder that preoxygenation is key because if you have 30 more seconds, there's very few airways you can't get. Amazing. Great takeaways. Uh, next, we had uh, senior resident Justin McLean talk about Reboa and update, and he's currently graduating, and a good friend of none other than our own Dr. Mike Stewart-Waltz, and you all did a podcast recently on Reboa on Taming the Shrew. Uh, we did indeed. Um, so Justin's a great guy. Uh, Justin's been passionate about this topic for a couple of years now. Um, he gave a talk um, uh, in the past on 
the, um, uh, the logistics surrounding transport of a patient who already had this procedure done. Um, and we did a follow-up uh, to that on Taming the Shrew. Um, I don't know how long that was ago, Bill, maybe uh, six to 12 months ago. Um, Justin's talk uh, today was an update to several concepts he's already introduced, um, has given an update in the technology, most specifically with the, uh, the prior catheter that has uh, recently uh, uh, been um, uh, FDA approved. Um, the prior catheter is a um, Reboa catheter that is uh, much more simple and made for uh, endovascular resuscitation at the bedside in a, uh, uh, an emergency critical care environment. Uh, Justin also talked uh, more about logistics uh, at my urging, which uh, I was pumped up about, and then a little bit about uh, uh, some research that has uh, come to pass uh, over the course of the last couple of years. So Justin, uh, I think, is going to be a thought leader in this uh, over the course of the next couple of years, and I look forward to um, seeing what he continues to have to say. So I got I had the opportunity last month to uh, to go to reanimate in San Diego, which is an amazing conference. And uh, they had the new prior ER Reboa catheter there, and I actually got to play with it and, uh, and place it in the sim lab. This thing is not any harder to put into a human being than a triple lumen catheter. Uh, it really does seem like a game changer, and uh, Justin clearly thinks that it is as well. I was really happy with this lecture because, well, for a number of reasons, but particularly as Mike pointed out, um, I think Justin's translation of his tacit knowledge and experience with actually taking these patients from point A, loading them in a helicopter, and getting them to point B was essentially invaluable. And I particularly liked how he reviewed the specific equipment or the special uh, uh, kit that he brings along, up to including some really benign things, but helpful when you get in a pinch like extra syringes or extra stopcocks. So I thought it was uh, very helpful. Yeah, no, that's an awesome point because so much of what we do is about the mastery of the logistics. Um, I, I think that that should be our, our favorite word in, in critical care transport is the logistics of the situation. And really going from being good to being great with respect to them is, is how you go, in, in my mind, this is just my opinion, but being a good team to being a great team. And I mean, we've already referenced like several talks from this morning and think about it. A lot of them are about the mastery of the logistics of the situation. It's about mastery of it, it's not grand new technologies, but it's rather thinking about problems and then through that thinking, mastering the problems, not coming up with brand new technologies. So this is stuff that after you get home, you can implement if you if you choose to think about it and come up with a plan. You don't have to buy a ton of stuff. You just have to invest into making a plan. In regards to mastery, I guess one of the quotes from a Japanese physician was using an ultrasound in the Seljinger technique, ER physicians should be capable of performing this. What do you guys think of uh, the newer data coming out of Japan that shows a higher complication rate? Justin presented the Japanese data. The the procedure itself is obviously not benign because you're you're applying some some something to the inside of someone's aorta. So complications will happen um, until we really robustly study this. I don't I don't know how many conclusions that we can make and kind of like take as uh, uh, take as gospel. I think we're a couple of steps behind really feasibly thinking about us placing these things pre-hospital or us placing these in emergency departments as emergency physicians and really delineating what the complications are. Um, I, I really like how 
we've started the conversation uh, as a conversation about logistics uh, and a conversation about how to make these things happen. And then as time goes on, we can talk about what the complications have kind of borne out to be in, uh, in kind of more well, robustly researched uh, situations, um, not, not in kind of propensity controlled situations, which is uh, my understanding of that data. Ultimately, I think with regard to your question, Faizan, it's sort of like balloon pumps. We may not buy the evidence base, but in critical care transport, it doesn't really matter because somebody's going to call us to transport somebody where this thing is already in place. Unless you work for London Hems right now, you're not the one that's going to be putting the Roboa in. You're going to be the one called to transport the patient with the Roboa. So whatever we may think about the evidence base, we still need to prepare ourselves to safely transport these patients. I'd like to get back to a comment Mike made about logistics. I think it's really important, aside from this topic, is that the difference between a good program and a great program is truly measured in little details like logistics. And it's a lot of work to, to go from that good to great. And it can be as simple as just looking at things you do every day, how you store things in your bags. A lot of us have bags that are like a darn Pixis, you know, where like is with like, and that's not very helpful. You need kind of task-focused storage of things. So look at how you store your equipment, what you can do from a human factor standpoint to shave a little bit of time off during a critical event. And those are the little things you do. A lot of those little battles are what make you outstanding in the grand scheme of things. Thanks, guys. That was very insightful, and we certainly look forward to Reanimate 17. Next up, one of our panel members gave a talk, and he's been surprisingly silent thus far, which is atypical for him. But I suspect he'll pipe up now. An update on emergency analgesia, pre-hospital and emergency department considerations by Dr. Mike Abernethy. Well, this was something, again, uh, that I've been very passionate about over the last few years, you know, the idea of oligoanalgesia and the fact that we really don't do a great job of treating our patients' pain in the emergency department, then also in the pre-hospital arena. And talking about the various drugs we use, uh, morphine versus fentanyl versus hydromorphone, and the idea of analgesic infusions versus IV push. You know, the one thing uh, that I'd like to emphasize, especially for intubated patients, you know, as Scott Weingart said, post-intubation care is all about analgesia and just a little bit about sedation. So you should be approaching your intubated patient from the analgesia standpoint the same as you would approach a patient with a shattered pelvis or a shattered femur. These people need big analgesia. And wouldn't be a lecture. I, I can work ketamine into an endocrine lecture. Uh, <laughs> we talked a little about ketamine and its use during in the airway. Uh, my drill as far as using ketamine as the induction agent and then using a ketamine infusion for post-intubation, which works very nicely. And uh, yeah, those are the big points. And fentanyl, it seems, is preferable to morphine. I've, we've been using a lot more fentanyl, and I don't think we're using much more. Is anyone else using morphine? No, not unless you're trying to get your patient to vomit. <laughs> it's, it's a great emetic, yeah. Um, but, you know, that's the point. It sort of fell out of favor. It's not, I don't think, a dangerous drug or anything like that. It's just that, you know, fentanyl is very titratable. It's ideal for infusions, and the same thing with hydromorphone if you need something with a longer half-life. 
I think something else Mike had touched on quite a bit in his lecture, not directly related to the pain control, is the agitated delirium of the violent patient. And when you're in a transport environment uh, in a tight space, that can be a, a big issue. And I think it really highlights that people have to have a plan ahead of time, anticipate trouble, have protocols to help protect people from their nursing board or their EMS board if they may do something that may be off the reservation otherwise. So you have to anticipate this trouble and uh, have a good, solid plan for how to take care of these patients safely. Next up, we had EMS fellow from UW, uh, Drew Cathers, hypertonic saline versus mannitol in the transport environment. Yeah, Drew did a really nice job. Uh, we recently had switched from mannitol uh, to hypertonic saline, and the primary reason was logistical. Uh, mannitol tends to crystallize. Uh, it's very temperature sensitive, and it has to be given through filters. And in our environment, especially in Wisconsin, you know, the idea of keeping the mannitol warm enough and then just being out for a short time and having things crystallize, which brought about our discussions with our neurosurgeons and our pediatric intensivists and bringing uh, hypertonic saline on board instead of mannitol. And he went through some of the other things, you know, the basic pathophysiology of increased ICP, uh, some of the non-pharmacological treatments of increased ICP as far as simple things like elevating the head of the bed which is difficult in the transport environment sometimes, especially with trauma patients, and uh, hyperventilation to a degree, not like we used to hyperventilate, but just bringing their end tidal CO2 or their um, arterial CO2 to into the 30s. He reviewed the literature and it was really interesting. There's not a lot of literature out there comparing mannitol versus uh, hypertonic saline, but overall, you know, for our purposes, I think the idea of using hypertonic saline in the transport environment, it just makes sense. It's nice. You can have one vial. Uh, you don't have to worry about a lot of the temperature issues. And, um, but he did a real good job. Yeah, I think that the logistics are key with hypertonic saline, and it's something in a busy scene run, you can hand, it, hand that to a paramedic, you know, administer this slowly over several minutes while you're doing other things. And I think also when you're looking to go to carry hypertonic saline, I'll tell you one of our challenges we had with our pharmacy is they have this obsession with the tonicity of it. And they were trying to say, oh, you can only give it through a central line. Well, something to bear in mind is the mannitol concentration that most of us were giving before is actually a little bit hyperosmolar, 2-3% uh, saline. Uh, so there is not an issue with giving it through a peripheral because most don't even think twice about giving mannitol through a peripheral. Agreed. And speaking of that, I would really like to garner some support to move up from 3% to a higher percent of hypertonic saline. If anybody out there is using 7.5% or greater hypertonic saline pre-hospital, please get in touch with me. I want your support. Amazing. And I, one other subtle point that he made was, uh, and one that we reinforce to our residents, is if you're in a pinch, uh, remember that sodium bicarbonate, especially in an acidemic patient, has a high osmotic load and can certainly help with your ICP. All right, moving on, we had another rousing talk by Michael Frakes uh, of Boston MedFlight. Toxicology interventions that are so crazy, they just might work. So I was there for this one and I absolutely loved it. Not simply because I'm a biochemical toxicology <laughs> super geek, but because Michael always gives such awesome lectures, and especially with something like toxicology and the understandable and very reasonable complete lack of RCTs, really helped you sort of 
grab onto some key points uh, considering the com- almost complete lack of data. And I think that's important because a lot of the times when you're stuck in these situations uh, where you have someone who's overdosed on a, a TCA or a calcium channel blocker or something like that, I feel like in the transport environment, we don't get the run-of-the-mill sort of overdose. If they're calling us, it's generally really, really bad, and it's pretty rare. So it's nice to have certain things to sort of latch on to, these co- sort of cognitive stepping stones, if you must. So. He was talking about things, for example, like a a good reminder that not everything that uh, blocks a sodium channel is uh, TCA. It can be things like uh, diphenhydramine and whatnot as well, reviewing those medications, talking about things to look for like uh, R3R in in, uh, uh, in lead AVR, and talking about some other quantitative features of uh, the QRS complex. And one of some statistics that I was unaware of uh, including, you know, once your QRS gets over 100, you're at an increased chance of these seizures in those patients that overdose on anything that blocks the sodium channel have upwards of a 34% chance of having a seizure. And once you get up above 160, then your uh, chance of having some sort of ventricular dysrhythmia jumps up to about 50%, which was interesting and nice to know. And then, of course, he went through the, uh, the treatment, but I, I thought overall it was a really good handling of the material with some awesome uh, take-home points. Something to remember, too, is one of the biggest sodium channel blockers out there is cocaine, Uh, usually not at the therapeutic doses people take. But once again, the FDA doesn't supervise street pharmacists, so you don't know the concentration. So when you have someone like who swallows that rock of crack, which is the case I had, you can sometimes see bradycardia, wide QRS, things that you may not normally associate with uh, cocaine because it is a sodium channel blocker. Dr. Bates, could you help us quantify what the therapeutic dosage of cocaine is? (laughs) It depends on which corner you purchase it from. (laughs) Fair enough. Next up, we had, uh, I think, one of the most tweeted talks uh, of the afternoon by Matthew Roginski, Death by Ventilation, a Primer on Therapeutic Misadventure in the Mechanically Ventilated. So Matt is uh, is one of our EM residents and current critical care fellows and has been uh, an amazing uh, uh, it's given us an amazing advantage in our flight program with his uh, recent knowledge and the stuff that he does. And this was, I think, yet another addition to his uh, list of awesome presentations. And uh, not only, was, I think, was his presenting style really awesome, but he was entertaining and went through some really uh, key sort of points in terms of where we can get into big trouble with ventilating patients. So I think he not only went over the the stuff that I think everybody's or relatively familiar with, like uh, the ARDSnet strategy for ventilating and oxygenating uh, patients who have ARDS, and he also went over things like uh, how to manage a patient, uh, ventilate a patient, uh, peri and post RSI who has a profound metabolic acidosis, as well as patients who have profound uh, restrictive pathology and bad asthmatics. And that's important because I think those are two populations where it's the you get around the RSI period and post RSI period you can really get into a lot of trouble so that review is great but I also think there was a couple of things that I took away from it and problems that I run into uh, when you're uh, sort of going through some of those strategies for example when you get down to incredibly uh, low volume strategies for some of your ARDSnet patients and they're bucking the vent, how to approach that. Uh, If you get to the point where you need to sedate them enough to now they're uh, they're starting to become hemodynamically unstable and their blood pressure is starting to drop. How do you handle that if they're still bucking the vent? So I thought those were very helpful and very practical uh, lessons I took away from that talk. 
Definitely a lot of tweets uh, with that talk. So certainly look back, uh, hashtag CCTMC16, and uh, peruse for those nuggets. A lot of great, valuable information there. And then last but not least up for the day was Kevin Colopy, recognizing and reacting to unseen hazards. Colopy is a rock star of a speaker. He's so professional. He's so polished. And I always take away just as much about how to how to present as I do about the content when I hear him speak. But the main things I took away were we're going to encounter drone strikes, bird strikes, lasers, and we've got to drill for it. We've, we, we can't pretend that these things aren't going to happen, and we need to do everything we can to prepare and to mitigate those risks. He really uh, delved into uh, how much of an effect that fatigue has on all of us in EMS. Uh, there, obviously, there's a lot of contributing factors to that. And ultimately, we need to be honest with ourselves uh, because our patients deserve somebody who is not exhausted when they're circling the drain. Uh, so we got to be honest with ourselves and be, and be willing to, uh, to call a timeout. And we need a program policy in place to support us if we do, in fact, play that card and call a timeout. A non-punitive timeout strategy. Absolutely. I thought that was a great point that he made. He also delved into some of the things that we don't like to talk about, which are PTSD and EMS, uh, suicidality and EMS, and things that are quite serious. And as certainly as medical directors, uh, we're quite empathic about and learning more about these processes and creating policies in place for uh, folks that are going out there working on a daily basis to improve mental health uh, in general and have uh, safety measures or uh, things along those lines like non-punitive timeout policies can really go a long way. He also brought up a lot of good points regarding um, you know, ground transport and safety issues associated with that. You know, Every time a helicopter crashes, it's almost national news. But you know, on a weekly basis, he pointed out that someone is dying in ground transport-related incidents, and a lot of that has to do with fatigue, long shifts, and all that. And you know, why aren't people looking into seat belts, helmets, safety devices? I mean, the chances are, you know, from my own experience, I'm a lot more frightened in the back of an ambulance than I am in a helicopter. Uh, but you know, why aren't we doing things like helmets, seat belts, and other issues? Fantastic points. Well, there you have it, CCTMC Day 2 in a nutshell. Big thanks to our expert panel, and this is Faison Arshad wishing everyone a safe tour.